forced organ harvesting uh, is uh, the killing of innocents for their organs. They don't consent. Uh, they don't even know what's happening. Uh, they uh, are not told in advance. They are just uh, blood tested, organ examined, uh, and uh, when a, a patient comes who wants their organs, they're just sedated uh, and uh, organ extracted and their bodies are cremated, the organs are brought to the hospital for the patient. The, uh, th that's basically what's happening. Coming up on British Thought Leaders, I sit down with David Matus, an international human rights lawyer and world-leading researcher of forced organ harvesting. David says the killing of prisoners of conscience for their organs is ongoing in China today. They're continuing to ad advertise transplant tourism, so, and, and the institutions are still functioning. I mean, they haven't closed down these transplant hospitals. And the genocide is happening in China, not only against the Uyghurs, but also against the Falun Gong spiritual practice. We called it a cold genocide in the sense that um, it's not happening all at once. It's, it's happening slowly over time. That's, uh, that's why the uh, term cold is used. I, I, I mean, uh, so it, you don't have this kind of picture of genocide the way you do uh, with hot genocides, uh, but I would say definitely, even though it's a, a slower moving genocide, it's a genocide all the same. I'm Lee Hall, this is British Thought Leaders. David Matus, thank you for joining us on British Thought Leaders. Thank you for inviting me. You've been a leading researcher on forced organ harvesting for many years now. Could you give us some background on what forced organ harvesting is and, and what's happening in China? Uh, forced organ harvesting uh, is uh, the killing of innocents for their organs. They don't consent. Uh, they don't even know what's happening. Uh, they are, are not told in advance. They are just uh, blood tested, organ examined, uh, and... Uh, when a, a patient comes who wants their organs, they're just sedated uh, and uh, organ extracted and their bodies are cremated. The organs are brought to the hospital for the patient. The, uh, th that's basically what's happening. Uh, and uh, I got started on this whole issue in uh, 2006 uh, because... Um, Basically, uh, I was asked to in investigate the issue. The, um, the whole issue started with a statement by a woman with a pseudonym, Annie, who made a public statement in Washington, D.C., that her ex-husband had been harvesting the corneas of practitioners of a spiritually-based set of exercises, Falun Gong, in, uh, in his hospital, uh, which was uh, Sujiatin Hospital, Shenyang City, Liangang Province in China. Other doctors had been harvesting other organs. The, uh, the Falun Gong practitioners were killed through organ extraction. Their bodies were cremated. So she made this statement public. Chinese government denied it. Coalition, an NGO called Coalition to Investigate Persecution of the Falun Gong uh, decided they needed a, an expert investigation of whether this was true or not. Uh, because there is just these competing statements. They put together a list of uh, 20 people who could investigate the issue, and I was on the list. I 
been involved in international human rights for some time by then, and so they were of me. Uh, David Kilgore was on the list. David Kilgore is a former, at the time, a former member of parliament, former uh, minister of government, minister of state for Asia and the Pacific. So the the uh, the NGO goes first to David Kilgore and says, "Well, you can't do an investigation with twenty people. I know David Matus. I can work with him." So then they come to me and I said, "Sure, I'd agree to do it." And so basically, that's how I got started. Now, because I'm an international human rights lawyer, I get asked to do a lot of different things. I mean, there's regrettably uh, an awful lot of international human rights violations in this world, and but very often I could say, uh, go to court, or uh, go to your member of parliament, or uh, go to the media, or I could suggest some very simple way of dealing with it. But with this, it, it was not so obvious, because what I was told was there's competing narratives. I didn't know which was true. Uh, the, what I'm also told is that the victims are dead, can't testify, their bodies are cremated, there's no autopsy, uh, that the, uh, the crime, if it occurs, occurs in an operating room in a prison, so there's no witnesses other than perpetrators and victims. The uh, records, if they exist, are prison records, hospital records, not publicly accessible. So uh, it presented, uh, to a certain extent, an evidence conundrum. How do you know? Which side is true when you can't interview witness, you can't see any records, you can't see, talk to the victim, you can't do an autopsy? Uh, is it just uh, left in the air? Well, this is a sort of issue because in my private practice, I'm a, a lawyer dealing with refugee cases, and refugees of, often come to me with a story w with, for which they have no evidence. Uh, they just can tell what happened to them. and. The, the person who decides their case doesn't know whether they're making it up or, or in order to get status in Canada or whether it's true. So I'm often faced with a situation like that with an evidentiary vacuum and an attempt to establish something for my client. So I figured maybe this was something I, I could do, but I didn't know of anybody else who would, I could put the, tell them go there and they would do it. So uh, I said, okay. Uh, and, uh, and of course, I knew David Kilgore, and uh, we'd known each other since university days, so I was happy to work with him, and so that's how I got started on it. But I would say that when I started on it, I didn't know which version was true, and I wasn't committed to proving either one or the other version was true. What I was trying to do was resolve the issues so that uh, it could be said with at least some certainty, either this was happening or this wasn't happening. So you were told there's this heinous crime happening, but there's no evidence and there's no kind of victims that you could talk to. How did you go about building the evidence to, to show this was happening? What I've tried to do uh, with David Kilgore is set up evidentiary trails, uh, both of proof and disproof. Uh, what, what is the sort of evidence that would establish that this is happening? And what is the sort of evidence that would establish that this is not happening? happening. And, and thinking of it that way, I was able to build up a number of evidentiary trails in both directions, and I proceeded to go down each of them. Uh, and what I found was that the evidentiary trails that uh, w would have 
disproved uh, the claim that this was happening, just went nowhere. There was nothing there. But the evidentiary trails that showed that this was happening, or would have showed that this was happening, all produced something. And, I mean, this is very typical of legal res uh, reasoning. You don't draw a conclusion until you he hear all the evidence. And so what I could say after accumulating all these bits and pieces of uh, evidence, none of which on its own established uh, the, the claim, but by considering them all together and also considering the total absence of evidence in the other direction, uh, that uh, David Kilgore and I were able to come to the conclusion that was, this was indeed happening. So what kind of evidence were we talking about? Well, of course, we had a number of uh, evidentiary trails, and, and it's an, uh, an awful lot of evidence. Uh, the, the problem what we're dealing with here is, is not too little evidence, but too much evidence. But it's none of that accumulation of evidence on its own establishes what's happening. It's, it's the totality that does. So it, it takes, takes a long time to go through it all. Uh, I, we were... Uh, that, uh, the, 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 there was this uh, Dr. Martin Elliott who told me that he went through the evidence, took him a year to do so, and he was convinced, but it's an indication of how much time it takes to go through it. But, uh, for instance, we had investigators calling into hospitals pretending to be relatives of patients who uh, wanted uh, organs of, of Falun Gong um, for... Uh, uh, their relatives on the basis that Falun Gong is a set of exercise, Falun Gong are healthy they're, uh, because the exercise in their organs would be healthy. And and so they were asking these hospitals for um, if they had uh, Falun Gong organs for sale and the hospitals would say, yeah, sure, come on down. Uh, and we had a number of calls like that. Now, that in itself, as far as I was concerned, relevant, supportive of the allegation. Not conclusive, though, because the hospitals could have been just making it up to promote a sale. But it, it was relevant. Another is, uh, I talked to a lot of patients who, uh, not uh, patients, but Falun Gong practitioners who got out of prison out of China, asked them what happened. I mean, mostly they wanted to talk about their torture, but one of the things they didn't necessarily want to talk about, but which all happened to them when I pressed them about it was they they were blood tested or examined systematically but and they could see that the other Falun Gong practitioners were blood tested and organ examined but the other uh, prisoners in prison were not I, I also talked to common prisoners who got out of China got out of prison out of China who told me the same thing that they were not blood tested nor examined the Falun Gong practitioners in the same prison as uh, them were now I mean, the Falun Gong practitioners, it was a mystery. They didn't know why it was being done. It didn't bother them. It didn't hurt them. Uh, I mean, the, the torture that they were inflicted upon them uh, in order to recant, that bothered them. They wanted to talk about that. But uh, the blood testing organ examina examination, it's necessary for organ transplants. You need blood type compatibility. You need, ideally, tissue type compatibility. And obviously, you need healthy organs. Uh, and... Uh, Again, another uh, piece of evidence, uh, not in itself conclusive, but relevant. Third piece of evidence, demonization. I mean, the Falun Gong were dehumanized uh, through communist propaganda, which, I mean, the people on the street may or may not have believed it, but the 
Communist Party operatives believed it, the guards believed it, the, uh, the, the, the court system believed it, the justice system believed it, the, the hospital system believed it. So it, it was easy in that situation to kill people for their organs because uh, uh, they were viewed as uh, non-human. Uh, an another evidentiary trail is transplant volumes. I mean, the transplant volumes were huge in China. Uh, I mean, the Chinese government said 10,000 a year. Uh, at one point, Ethan Gutman, David Kilgore, and I did our tabulation of the transplant volumes rather than taking the government figures just by adding up transplant volumes hospital by hospital. And we got 100,000 a year. Mm -hmm. So where's it coming from? Uh, they say prisoners sentenced to death originally. Uh, how many prisoners are being sentenced to death and then executed? Well, they wouldn't say. But realistically, prisoners sentenced to death couldn't be the source for this volume because uh, a lot of prisoners, common criminal prisoners, have hepatitis B and their, their organs are damaged. Uh, the law says prisoners have to be executed uh, seven days after sentence, and yet patients could arrange transplants, including transplants for vital organs, way in advance, which is out of sync with the uh, criminal law, as well the criminal uh, system for uh, imposing the death penalty over time decreased the number of, uh, of crimes for which the death penalty was imposed, in increased the level of court you had to go to in order to get the death sentence uh, penalty imposed, uh, so it became a, a lot more cumbersome to get organs from prisoners sentenced to death, so uh, it, it wasn't a valid explanation. And then eventually there was such a noise internationally about Chinese sourcing organs from prisoners sentenced to death, which they admitted, that they backed away from that admission and said everything's coming from donations. So then we looked at the donation centers and we'd call them up and they, they were closed or they had, if they were open, they had tiny donations, I mean statistically insignificant. So. Uh, it couldn't have been coming from donations, uh, and so so that that was uh, an another evidentiary trail. And as I mean, as you can see, there's just bits and pieces here and there that cumulatively lead to the conclusion that this is happening. So just to touch on one one thing you mentioned there, so these organs um, they prefer them because they come from people that do Falun Gong, which is a Qigong practice, and they feel these organs are kind of better quality or something like that? Well, that's what the callers were saying. Uh, but uh, it, it was no doubt reflective of the patients generally. I mean, that obviously the, 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 the hospital on the other line or the doctors uh, who were answering the calls uh, took the calls as real. Uh, and I assume they took them as real because that was a legitimate inquiry in the system in which they were operating. Uh, the uh, and of course it makes sense. Uh, particularly, uh, I mean, if somebody knows that you're either going to get an organ from a Falun Gong practitioner or an organ from a prisoner sentenced to death, uh, you're better off with an organ from a Falun Gong practitioner because the prisoner sentenced to death uh, is not going to be at the same health level uh, as a Falun Gong practitioner. So. Why, why was Falun Gong being persecuted in this kind of way in China in the first place? Well, there's, there's not a, a good reason. I, 
Uh, Falun Gong was very popular, uh, and it was in, originally encouraged by the Chinese government. Uh, the, uh, it, there was a shift from uh, under Deng Xiaoping from socialism to capitalism, which kind of guided the ideological uh, basis for communism. Uh, and so there, there was kind of a spiritual vacuum, which to a large extent uh, Falun Gong filled. Uh, Falun Gong, from my perspective, looked to be a, a, a blending of uh, ancient Chinese uh, spiritual and exercise traditions, uh, and therefore resonated with the Chinese population. Uh, and uh, I mean, it was a blending and updating. And uh, so, uh, and, and then of course the Chinese government was encouraging it because it was beneficial to health, cut down costs on the health system. So it, it became, in short order, tremendously popular. It went from a standing start in 92 to by 1999, according to government estimates, 70 million people. According to practitioner estimates, 100 million people. Uh, and uh, people would exercise outdoors in groups, and there were 3,000 practice stations in China. And, and at some point, uh, Jiang Zemin and, and, and Lu Gong, some of the members of the Standing Committee, the Central Committee of the Communist Party, got alarmed by the popularity. Uh, they could see these crowds. And uh, Jiang Zemin sent a, a memorandum to the um, uh, the Standing Committee, the Central Committee, uh, uh, concerned about it. The, uh, I mean, uh, Falun Gong was not very widespread, but it was also up and down the party. I mean, there's a lot of party practitioners, government practitioners, uh, and so there was a lot of leakages, leakages. I mean, the statement that the letter that uh, Zhang Zemin sent to the Standing Committee was not public, but it was leaked. Uh, the there'd been a prior incident, uh, some uh, publication in a university uh, criticizing Falun Gong. Uh, within the Communist Party, I mean, there's no elections. We know them here in Canada with competing parties uh, uh, kind of advocating to the public that, uh, uh, that the public should vote for this party rather than that party. I mean, you do get power struggles within the Communist Party, but they're not, they don't take the form of uh, elections and appeals to the public. Instead, what you have is internal struggles. Uh, and the internal struggles are, this is better for the party, that is better for the party. Uh, and uh, the, uh, and uh, the people within the party that are ambitious uh, have these kind of agendas of what's good for the or, of what they think is good for the party and uh, hope to succeed politically by promoting their views of what's good for the party. So some people within the party see this mass movement of uh, Falun Gong and they say, these people are not communists, we've got to repress them because they're not communists. Other people within the party say, they're harmless. I mean, they've got no political agenda, all they're doing is doing exercises. So that became an internal power struggle within the party uh, about what to do about Falun Gong. And eventually it percolated up to the Standing Committee, and uh, Zhang Zemin um, took the side of the anti-Falun Gong component of the party on, on this issue. Lu Gan, uh, who was another party uh, figure, was, was ahead of him on this, uh, but couldn't have carried the party on his own. There, there was a, a demonstration uh, in... Uh, well, it wasn't really a demonstration. It was a, it, it was a gathering of uh, people sent to the petition office. They were 
Com uh, there was a group complaining about an article in a university uh, publication, I think it was in Tianjin, uh, about Falun Gong, and they were complaining. And the uh, and and the the local university says go to the petition office in Beijing. So the the practitioners show up to the uh, petition office in Beijing in large numbers, and uh, this gathering uh, alarmed uh, Zhang Zemin. Uh, said it was the, the biggest uh, gathering in the Tiananmen Square area since the Tiananmen Square massacre, although he didn't call it the massacre. Uh, the, uh, and uh, he, he was just concerned about the size of Falun Gong. It was just too large, not, uh, not uh, communist. Also, it was not atheist, it was spiritual. And uh, so uh, he uh, basically felt threatened by the size of the movement. And uh, it's, it, it was nothing more than that uh, that, that uh, led to the repression of Falun Gong. I mean, the party was used generally to getting its way about do this, and people do it, don't do this, and people don't do it. And they assumed all they had to do was say, Falun Gong is repressed or stopped, or, and, and people would stop. And they were blindsided by the fact that people just continued. Uh, and, and continued to practice, continued to protest. Well, it started to protest after after the after the initial statement of uh, uh, that was announced on July twentieth, nineteen ninety nine, that the practice should stop. Uh, and so that led to much worse persecution. You released your report in two thousand and six. There were uh, updates and and a book as well. What did the CCP say? Did they kind of admit to what was happening with the organ harvesting? Because if people are internationally finding out about organs, there must be some form of promotion of it all. Well, they certainly were promoting the sale of organs uh, around the world through brokers and through websites. And uh, I mean, you can still see them today. I mean, Love Handy still uh, advertises transplant tourism into China today. Uh, they're on the internet. Uh, the uh, but they weren't, of course, saying <laughs> we're killing prisoners' of conscience with their organs. Uh, uh, the but they denied in such an odd way uh, because you know I'd gone through the exercise of figuring out what's the case for, what's the case against. I knew what the case against was, but they couldn't figure it out. <laughs> Uh, they they said the strangest things. They said I was anti-Chinese, but obviously, if uh, I was anti-Chinese, I wouldn't really care whether some Chinese were killing other Chinese. Uh, I mean, I'd have to care about the Chinese to care about that. Uh, they would say I was repeating what Falun Gong told me, but I knew very much that was not the case. I mean, the Falun Gong were repeating what I was saying rather than the other way around and what David Kilgore was saying. Uh, I mean, uh, the, uh, they had this, uh, they actually produced a, a documentary uh, through Phoenix TV in Mandarin in Hong Kong where they uh, tried to rebut our report, but in, in such a strange way that it, it really affirmed what we were saying. They interviewed one of the doctors that our investigators called Lu Ping and presented him with a transcript uh, of the conversation we recorded and, and asked him, did you get this call? And he said, yes. Asked him, did you say these things? He said, yes. 
except for all the stuff about Falun Gong. That I didn't say. And so they're, they're accusing me of, uh, and David Kilgore, of just fiddling with the transcript. Mm. They don't acknowledge that there's a recording, and they don't explain how we seamlessly could have interwoven in his own voice what he denies having said and what he admits having said. I, I mean, it's just such a, an implausible explanation that they're really, I mean, they're so used to people agreeing with them that they don't even think through what uh, an, a proper answer would be to someone who disagrees with them. Uh, and and uh, this sort of material is generated for people who don't have access to an opposing point of view. Mm. It's not really designed to convince anyone. And the fact that they couldn't even think of a good answer to the evidence that I produced, not even as good an answer as I could think to the evidence that I produced, led me to think that really uh, this must be happening. I mean, their very denials was a further evidentiary trail in favor of... Uh, the conclusion that this was happening. So that documentary was pretty much their only rebuttal um, that, that they gave. Well, no, they would make statements. Uh, like, you know, there was another interesting incident, uh, which is equally foolish, I would say. Uh, the uh, uh, Jay Levy, who's a doctor in Israel, asked me to speak at his hospital, Bellinson Hospital in Israel, near Tel Aviv, about this issue. Uh, the um, government of China heard about it. They, they called up the foreign ministry of the government of Israel, asking them to cancel the event, and the foreign ministry passed it on to the hospital. The hospital said no. They then uh, uh, asked, uh, the Chinese embassy asked the foreign ministry to ask the hospital to disinvite me. The, the foreign ministry passed it on to the hospital. The hospital said no. The uh, uh, Chinese embassy then asked the foreign ministry to ask the hospital to disinvite the foreign uh, Falun Gong practitioner who was on the panel and instead invite a member of the Chinese embassy. And to that, uh, the, the foreign ministry passed that on to the hospital, and to that, the hospital said yes. So I'm on this panel without the Falun Gong practitioner and with a representative of the embassy. The uh, representative of the embassy gives a speech, uh, at the text of which I have, which says that all I'm doing is, uh, in, my, in my report, the report I wrote with David Kilgore, is repeating rumors passed on to me by Falun Gong. And then he proceeds, supposedly, to quote uh, experts, uh, excerpts from uh, our report. It, uh, and he has these quotes, it was said that, or we were told that, or we heard that. And he has this sequence of quotes to show that this was all rumor. But of course, I mean, I could word search what we wrote, and none of those phrases which he s says to be quoting are found <laughs> in our materials. Uh, and it, it's not a very elaborate exercise to word search. I mean, it was uh, obviously false and, and, and very easy to establish it was false. So it was, it was just like utter nonsense. Uh, and uh, so, so what I would say is, I mean, the, this Phoenix documentary is one example. This um, this Bellinson debate is another example. 
but it's time and time again I see them saying something, but it's just nonsense. Uh, and so, I mean, if that's all you can say, an answer is nonsense. It means you don't have an answer. It means it must be real. What reaction have you had from the international medical community, particularly transplant surgeons who hear what their colleagues in China are doing? Well, I would say it's been split. Uh, the, uh, uh, I, I would say that there's some uh, transplant surgeons who uh, are under the illusion that they can wean China away from transplant abuse by uh, contact, negotiation, uh, the uh, just uh, friendly conversations. Uh, there's others that realize, I would say, that that's not going to work, that all you're going to do when you do that is get them to say what, they'll say what they, you want them to say and, and they'll just walk away and carry on doing what they're doing. Uh, and so the, there are, there is, I would say, a, a split within the profession. Uh, Jay Levy, I mentioned, uh, who's very keen uh, on, on addressing the issue, uh, has done some research on the issue, has written some articles on the issue, and he's involved in the Heart and Lung Transplantation Society, which has basically said they're not going to publish any transplant research from China or allow speakers to uh, come to their meetings and so on. I mean, that's heart and lung, but the rest of the profession is not like that. Uh, I, the Canadian Society of Nephrology and the Canadian Society of uh, Transplantation have produced a good ethical statement, basically. Don't, uh, for transplant tourists, uh, uh, don't um, give them prescriptions, don't give them uh, medical records, uh, warn them, and in some countries, they don't specifically mention China, but in some countries, if you uh, go abroad, uh, somebody may be killed for their organs, so they're, 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 it's much more a sophisticated ethical statement than uh, in many other countries. But uh, the, uh, I would say uh, there's other transplantation professionals who, I mean, some of them are just not engaged. They, they just don't get involved in the issues. But others are basically uh, prepared to negotiate, accommodate, visit, uh, invite, and uh, have discussions about the issue uh, as if that's going to change things. Mm. What about governments? Have, have many governments taken action to stop people going to China to get organs? Well, we do. I mean, uh, the, uh, there's 20 countries that have got legislation now uh, making it an offense to, uh, uh, to get involved in organ transplant abuse abroad. Uh, Canada's uh, one, uh, UK's one. Uh, the uh, th there's altogether uh, there's a Council of Europe treaty on uh, on the issue, the Convention Against Trafficking in Human Organs. There, there's uh, 15 states parties, which is quite few, but it's certainly better than none, and it's in force. And and there's five other countries uh, besides that have enacted the necessary legislation. So, so that there is some, uh, uh, when we started, uh, you know, I mentioned evidentiary trails, and one of the evidentiary trails we looked at is, what can stop this? Uh, and the answer is nothing. This wasn't illegal in China. Uh, in fact, 
uh, I mean, much to uh, you know, China has produced many surprises to me. But one of them was that the, they actually have legislation which say it's, I mean, it's, it's legal to source organs from prisoners without their consent if their bodies aren't claimed. Uh, and uh, uh, it was a, a 1984 uh, law, and uh, there's a 1979 law which says something similar. It's for research. The organs are sourced for research. But everywhere else around the world, I mean, some countries uh, have nationality jurisdiction rather than territoriality jurisdiction. And for nationality jurisdiction, the criminal law operates for nationals abroad uh, without specific extraterritorial legislation. France is like that, for instance. But UK, Canada, there, there, there's territoriality jurisdiction, which means for the law to operate abroad, you need extraterritorial legislation. And uh, when we started, there wasn't any of that anywhere. Uh, the, uh, and now uh, there's at least 20. But one of the gaps in the system still pretty well everywhere is mandatory reporting. Uh, because even, even with nationality jurisdiction or extraterritorial legislation, how do you know what happened? Because uh, when a, somebody goes abroad, there's, I mean, there's no exit controls. Anybody can leave. Uh, and most of the, and I mean, some countries have ex exit controls, but most don't. Canada doesn't. UK doesn't. The uh, when you come back, you, uh, the um, you could be asked about what were you doing, mm -hmm. but uh, m mostly, uh, like if you come back and, if, and and you've got a UK passport, you just get in. Uh, similar in Canada, they don't ask you any questions, or they might, but they certainly don't have to. Uh, and it's more idle chit-chat than a real investigation. So that, uh, and uh, so, the system doesn't know. I mean, even even the system with laws doesn't know what people are doing abroad. Uh, and the only way to get at that is mandatory reporting by the health system to uh, the health uh, administration uh, about transplant tourism. Because transplant patients need anti-rejection drugs for the rest of their lives. So the health system back home knows about transplant tourism, but uh, normally the, the, the health system wouldn't tell anybody because of patient-practitioner confidentiality. And the only way you break through that is a system of mandatory reporting. Taiwan has mandatory reporting, and it's interesting that they would have it because, of course, they're going to know more about what's going in, on in China than almost anybody else. Uh, but uh, I, I'm not aware of any other jurisdiction that has it. And so that's, that's still a gap in the system that needs to be filled. So your report first came out 17 years ago. Is this still going on in China now? Uh, well, it, 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 what we see uh, w with uh, organ transplant abuse is a rolling cover-up. Every time I quote someone, he denies he says it, and then takes down, and the party takes down the statement that he said it. Uh, the and I mean everything is archived, uh, but the official party line just shifts with the evidence. S similarly with statistics. Uh, I can get statistics about volumes of particular organs or in particular hospitals uh, or, or nationwide. I quote them. The, the reporting series disappears. I, I mean, uh, this is uh, pretty comprehensive. Uh, and uh, so uh, over time, 
the, the evidence that's available to piece together what's happening now as opposed to yesterday becomes harder and harder because each time, like we did report 2006, 2007, 2009, uh, 2016, and each time, every time we put out another report, we see a, an advancing cover-up. Uh, and, uh, but uh, one thing they can't cover up is the transplantation industry. I mean, they built all of these hospitals based on the prisoner of conscience, an inexhaustible supply of prisoner of conscience organs. They hired all this staff based on this inexhaustible supply. Inexhaustible supply. They um, uh, put in all these beds in hospitals based on this supposed supply. Uh, and they're, they're continuing to ad advertise transplant tourism. So, and, and the institutions are still functioning. I mean, they haven't closed down these transplant hospitals. And, and there's still uh, no obvious explanation uh, other than um, prisoners of conscience. And one thing, actually, that has become more visible recently uh, than before is, is what's happening in Xinjiang with the Uyghurs. Because, and this is something that never, we never saw with Falun Gong, because Falun Gong organs were all sourced locally, but, uh, because Falun Gong was everywhere. But the, uh, the Xinjiang Uyghur organs are being shipped from Xinjiang throughout China. So we have a Radio Free Asia report about flight shipments of organs from Xinjiang. We have airport signs in the in the major airports in 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 in, in the uh, Xinjiang province. Uh, human organ transport lanes, uh, and so there. I mean, and you can just see them at the airports. We've got pictures of them, uh, and and this is new. So. Uh, What's happening, of course, is uh, over the course of years uh, now, uh, I mean, since the early 2000s, decades, uh, the, the, the mass volume of uh, in the hundreds of thousands of, uh, of uh, Falun Gong practitioners arbitrarily and definitely de detained, uh, the volume's been depleted through their mass killing uh, through organs. And so the, the, this uh, health institutional system, the hospital system that's selling organs around the world, uh, the, they need another source of organs or other sources of organs just to keep this in industrial scheme operating. And, and so uh, th there's a re replacement, not entirely, I mean, the Falun Gong still victims, but at least partially by Uyghurs that are now being shipped out of, um, out of Xinjiang. So obviously, you know, 17 years is quite a long time in terms of uh, technology. Have you seen any um, changes in the, uh, what's happening with organ harvesting based on movements forward in technology? Yes. Well, uh, first of all, I would say that the very uh, advent of transplant technology made this mass killing possible. I mean, uh, I mean, the Nazis did all sorts of horrible things, but they didn't do this because transplant technology hadn't developed uh, at this point. It's, it's something that, that developed uh, after World War II. Uh, the uh, and technology itself is morally neutral. It can be used either for good or bad. But with transplant technology, the people who developed it didn't really um, anticipate. I mean, it was developed for human good, not not to kill prisoners' conscience. Uh, and and so the the people who developed it didn't really think about it 
in this way. As a result, there, there was no system of prevention and remedy that was instituted at the time that the technology developed. And also, the fact that it was developed for human good has led to a lot of uh, disbelief. Uh, I mean, uh, you can understand uh, with tanks or machine guns, if there's a better development, it can lead to more killing. But uh, sometimes people find it hard to believe that something like transplant technology was developed for human good would lead to more killing. Uh, so uh, th th that's, that's uh, been a problem. But uh, th the problem accumulates as transplant technology develops because as transplant technology develops, the killing becomes more efficient uh, and it becomes more widespread. And uh, one of the limitations of transplant technology uh, initially was a short ischemic time, the time that the organ can live outside the body, uh, as a result of which organs in, Ch in China and everywhere had to be resourced locally because uh, you flew them around, you lost time, and uh, organs would not survive. But now what they've developed is, is uh, f fluids, uh, refrigeration, uh, extra corporeal membrane oxygenation machines, ECMO machines that can allow for greater scheming times and, and basically allows for organs to be shipped from Xinjiang to the rest of China with the organs surviving and being viable for transplant. So uh, the uh, it was, I guess, you could say an unhappy coincidence for the Uyghurs that uh, uh, the, uh, as the uh, Falun Gong supply was being depleted, the, uh, the uh, ischemic t uh, technology developed to the point where uh, and, uh, and the uh, organs of Uyghurs could be used. I mean, uh, the Uyghurs, like the Falun Gong, were not initially detained en masse uh, for organ transplant purposes. I mean, Falun Gong were initially detained... Uh, because uh, of their popularity. Uh, the Uyghurs were initially detained en masse because of a, 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 tourist, a, a terrorist incident which, uh, for which uh, the regime of Xi Jinping blamed the whole Uyghur population rather than the terrorists themselves. Uh, but then once you had this massive arbitrarily, uh, arbitrarily indefinitely detained population and this organ transplant industry sourcing organs from prisons, they, they, they both in turn just became victims of this machine. From your point of view as an international human rights lawyer, is what's happening to Falun Gong in China a genocide? Yes, well I actually even uh, wrote an article uh, about that with Maria Chung and uh, Richard Ann, which was published, published in the Institute of uh, Genocide Studies. Uh, and it's it's one of the, their most popular articles, I believe. Uh, the uh, and we called it a cold genocide in the sense that um, it's not happening all at once. It's it's happening slowly over time. That's uh, that's why the uh, term cold is used. And we talked about how that's so. Uh, the um, the definition of genocide is uh, well, mass killing. Uh, obviously, that occurs with intent to destroy the group in whole or in part. And, I mean, not everybody who's involved in the, the mass killing has that intent, but surely some do. Uh, I mean, this is ultimately directed by the Communist Party, and the, for the Communist Party, that's their motivation, uh, at least one of their motivations. 
and and so it, it fits within the de definition. Now, many genocides, because they're hot genocides, you can see uh, the, the ravages immediately. Like, uh, well, of course, with the Holocaust, the, uh, the the Allies liberated the death camp, so you can see the the bodies. But you, you, like with Rwanda, also that happened in a few months, and 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 so when there's mass killings. Um, immediately, they're a lot more visible. But a cold genocide over time, uh, in, in this context where you don't see the bodies at all, I mean, they're all cremated. I mean, all you can see is crematoria, but crematoria are not unusual in China. I mean, uh, that, that's the common way of disposing of corpses. It's, it's r relatively uncommon for uh, dead people to be buried. Mostly they're cremated in China. So, uh, I, I mean, uh, so it, you don't have this kind of picture of genocide the way you do uh, w with hot genocides. Uh, but I would say definitely, even though it's a, a slower-moving genocide, it's a genocide all the same. There's been talk for many years of the Communist Party falling in China, but we continue to hear new horrors coming out. For example, you talked about the Uyghurs and the, the, the big internment camps, etc. Do you feel any time soon we will see the positive developments in China? Uh, of course. I mean, my general attitude is, uh, for, for myself, uh, don't predict the future, try to make the future. Uh, so, uh, I, I mean, the future depends upon us. Uh, and if we don't want the Communist Party around, get rid of them. <laughs> Uh, the uh, but I would say generally because I've been involved in this human rights business more or less all my professional career. What I see is uh, that uh, regimes appear very rigid and then they disintegrate all at once. Uh, the um, and I sometimes use the metaphor of uh, a pane of glass. I mean, you can hit a pane of glass, knock on it with your finger or your knuckles, nothing happens, it just doesn't budge. But if you keep on knocking at it, knocking on it, eventually it just shatters all at once. Uh, and I, I heard a talk recently at a conference I was at about how uh, very few people have made very big changes. Uh, one example was Lech, uh, Lech Walenza in Poland. He climbs over a wall and decides to rally some people to call a strike, and the whole regime just collapses. Uh, the uh, and we've seen something like that in China recently. I mean, they completely flipped on COVID. Uh, at one point, they were very strict, and, and then they just let everything go. And, and basically, uh, because of a fire in Urumqi where some people were killed, and they couldn't get out because of COVID restrictions, and, and it just had re reverberations across China uh, to the point where the party realized that its, uh, its COVID policy was unsustainable. and, and the, Right now, uh, with, with the killing of Falun Gong, the killing of Uyghurs, the repression of Hong Kong, uh, the repression of uh, Mongolians and Tibetans and so on, it's all, I, I mean, the way the Communist Party uh, portrays it, it's us against them. But when people start to realize, generally, that it's the Communist Party against everybody, uh, then it'll just collapse. David Matus, thank you for joining us on British Thought Leaders. Okay, thank you for again for inviting me. <laughs>